and several more, I think, that want to uh, spend uh, some time just uh, reading the Bible and studying it together. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Uh, we will probably shortly need to turn this fan on and probably open the door. If you're very cold-natured, you may want to be on this side of the room, and if you're very warm-natured, you want to maybe want to be on that side. So if you want to move, you can, or you may uh, decide that later as uh, time goes on. In general, we'll try to keep as good an order as we can so that we can concentrate on what we're trying to uh, do, but uh, you may want to uh, find some place that'll be uh, suitable for your uh, temperature. Uh, look at the book of Isaiah. That's what we're going to look at uh, over these next three days. My goal is to try to get through the first half uh, in these three days. If we get through more, that'll be wonderful. If we get through less, it may take us more than uh, two years to uh, cover the book. So uh, we'll see what happens. Hopefully uh, we can have good discussion. I want you to feel free to talk uh, productively, certainly. I want us to be as uh, productive as we can be about those things, but uh, uh, if we can have good discussion and and focused discussion, uh, then that's uh, certainly helpful to us. The prophets are basically preachers of the covenant. They were God's spokesmen to teach the people the will of God, the word of God in their generation. Isaiah is perhaps almost the classic prophet. Not the longest. Jeremiah was longer in terms of volume. But wow, Isaiah had tremendous messages uh, for his people. In a generation, as most of the Israelite generations were, where the people were not overly faithful to the Lord. They were generally prosperous. Then they fell upon various hard times with different kinds of international threats. And uh, they often, during this period, succumbed to the temptation to trust in other nations and in idols instead of trusting in the Lord. And really, Isaiah's main focus is to encourage us to trust in God. He, he prophesied, according to verse 1, in the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He, he began his prophesying at the very end of Isaiah's reign. Jotham was a good king, but he didn't reign long. Ahaz was very wicked and corrupt, and uh, really uh, damaged the nation greatly, as we'll see later on, by his turning to other nations and to idols and not trusting in the Lord. You can look in Kings, uh, particularly in Chronicles, to see how horrible his reign was. And then Hezekiah, who began with the desire to turn to alliances with other nations, but finally, through Isaiah, I think, primarily, was was, uh, encouraged to put his trust and faith in God. So that's kind of the time period we're looking at. As you look at the book of Isaiah overall, I'm going to suggest a three-part outline, and then we'll break those parts down as we go. Uh, There's other ways to look at it. But I would see the first five chapters as being sort of the prologue of the preface to the book. The first five chapters do not have any dates or any specific events referred to. And I think the first five chapters are kind of a synthesis of the message. If you take the message and try to boil it down to some of the real principles involved, I think that's chapters 1 through 5, kind of an introduction to the book. Chapter 6, we begin with the call of Isaiah. Jeremiah's prophecy begins with this call. Ezekiel's prophecy begins with this call. Jeremiah throws those first five, or Isaiah throws those first five chapters in front as an introduction, and then we start with this call in chapter 6, and I think chapter 6 to 39 deal with the issue of trust in God in Isaiah's generation, 
And then chapters 40 to 66 encourage trust in God and the blessings God has for future generations. So that's how I would divide the book up. And uh, we'll, we'll look at some details of that as we go. Um, do you have some questions or comments by way of introduction? There are a lot of introductory kinds of things we could look at. Is there anything you want to talk about along that line before we actually get into the book itself? Uh, I read that his, uh, his name was kind, of, uh, was kind of Joshua backwards. It kind of, it kind of portrayed the same message uh, that salvation from Yahweh and that was good considering, that, uh, considering what it talks about. Okay. I didn't know that, but that's good. Other thoughts, comments, by way of introduction? We've got plenty of seats over here, and Sandra's trying to keep the, the uh, stairway uh, clear so people can get up and down if they need to, so make yourself at home. All right, would somebody read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 9? Vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not more softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Okay, as we look at this five-chapter introduction, what we're going to see is that there are two main themes. There's the judgment on God's people for their wickedness, and there's the future blessings after the judgment. Now, the, the, the greater part is going to be on the judgment for their sins. That's really the greater emphasis. I think that's their greater need at this point. But we'll see him alternating back and forth. What do you know about uh, the person and the life of Isaiah? What? His father was Amos. Yeah, his father's name was Amos. What else do you know about his life and his, you know, background and his profession and uh, all the uh, events of his personal life? Practically nothing. We'll see in the book a few chapters in which Isaiah actually personally interacts with people. He interacts with King Ahaz in chapter 7, with uh, King Hezekiah in chapters uh, 36 to 39. Uh, he's going to uh, have a particular thing God asks him to do that's sort of embarrassing in chapter 20. But there's not a lot about 
Isaiah's personal life. Wonder why not? Why wouldn't it be important? The message is more important than the messenger. Absolutely. This is God's message. It's the vision that God gave him. So the point of Isaiah is God's message, not Isaiah's person. And uh, that perhaps is the reason that we don't know a lot about Isaiah's person, much less than we know about some of the other major prophets. In fact, all of the other major prophets, we know a lot more about their life and, and person, whether it's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, than what we know about Isaiah. The focus here is on the message. Now, this introductory uh, part in, chapter, in verses 1 through 9 is addressed to who? The heavens and the earth. Now, why would God address the heavens and the earth? Well, uh, yeah, probably. I think there's a special role the heavens and the earth have in what God's doing right here. Do you know what it is? They're witnesses of the rebellion of the people, certainly, because, well... The rebellion of the people was done under the heavens and on the earth. So the heavens and the earth know about those things. Um, but also the heavens and the earth were witnesses of what? God's covenant. If you look back in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 4.26, when God made the covenant with the people, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it because of their wickedness. And also in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and in verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. So the heavens and the earth were the witnesses of the covenant God made. Now what God's doing right here is basically pressing charges against the nation. Charges of a breach of covenant. This is really God's lawsuit against the nation. And what is it that he's charging his people with? Revolt. That's the one word, word summary of Israel's life and history at this point. They revolted. They rebelled. They've been unfaithful to God. And that doesn't seem like a very smart thing for them to do. He negatively compares them with what? Donkey and ox. Two animals highly noted for their intelligence, right? <laughs> Not particularly, but even these animals who aren't uh, particularly perceptive knew what? Their owner. Why would they know their owner? Yeah, he feeds them. You know, I mean, even an ox or donkey, they recognize who feeds them. They know where to go to eat. They, they maintain their loyalty in that sense. But the instincts of these dumb animals exceed the spiritual perceptiveness of God's people. You know, Israel ought to be able to reflect on their lives as deeply as an ox or a donkey. But he says, they know their master. 
my people, they don't know. <laughs> they don't realize I'm the one who's fed them. In fact, in verse 4, he pretty well exhausts the Hebrew vocabulary for sin. <laughs> you know, sinful nation, iniquity, evildoers, corruptly, abandoned, despised, turned away. They have just done everything wrong. <laughs> Uh, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. God is holy, and when they are so wicked and corrupt, that is really outrageous. That's how Isaiah begins. Is that the way you'd begin? How are you supposed to begin? Good yeah, aren't you always supposed to start with the positive, you know? Tell people what they've done well before you tell them what they've done wrong. Well, there may be some times for that. There's some times you can see that in the Bible. But we must not minimize the sinful condition of the people we're teaching and preaching to. I mean, the fact is, this nation is corrupt, they've revolted, they've rebelled, and that's the main point of their spiritual condition. Isaiah begins this book just like that. Do you have a comment or thought to verse 4? So, what's happened to them so far? They are sick and they're sick, they've been beaten up. How bad is it? From the soles of the head. Yeah, that's pretty comprehensive. (laughs) In fact, God's saying, you know, I don't really know where else I could beat you. (laughs) You know, have you ever had a kid that was just so ornery? You spank them, you spank them, you spank them, and they're red all over, and you don't have any more place to spank them at. You know, where else are you going to hit them? You know, that's basically what God's saying. I've, I've punished you, I've disciplined you, you're black and blue from head to toe. I don't know anything else I can do. Now, I want you to think about that picture the picture of the nation bruised and bleeding and sick because of their sins when you think about a passage like Isaiah 53 by his scourging we are healed he is the one who heals us of all of the black and blue marks of all the sickness that we have incurred upon ourselves because of our sins but right here the picture is the nation has been pummeled (coughs) And they're still rebellious. If you want to talk about it in plain terms, verses 7 to 9 pretty much spells it out. Where are they at? What's happened? They've been taken away in captivity. Not taken away in captivity quite, but almost... Been overrun by enemies over and over again. Yes, to the point where desolate. What else? Burned cities. Burned cities. Burned out cities. Maybe would be a better expression for us. To the point where they're like what? Just shut us up. Yeah, exactly. You know, they've been left like a shelter in 
a vineyard. Like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. I'm sure you've seen one of those. But the idea is, you know, just kind of like there's nothing much left. About all you've got is just this, you know, city of Jerusalem kind of isolated with the whole countryside devoured by their enemies. And he said, if it hadn't been for the grace of God, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Just how were Sodom and Gomorrah? That's a picture of what? <coughs> yeah. Annihilation. <laughs> there was nothing left of Sodom and Gomorrah whatsoever. And if it weren't for the grace of God, he said, that's where we would have been. I want you to think about this. We so often in our generation are we have this, this mentality of everything is to be successful. We love growth. We love progress. We love bigger and better and nicer and more successful. And we come to make that sort of our goal. We want to, what our goal is to, to get as successful and as popular and as prosperous. Well, someone has said, and I think if you look at this passage, you can see this. We should not judge by number unless we prefer the chaff to the wheat. I mean, the righteous are a remnant. To think that most of the people will be serving God, that, that if, 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 we're, if we're really where God wants us to be, we're going to be on the march and we're going to be growing by leaps and bounds. Maybe not. It's usually error that's growing by leaps and bounds. God's people are usually in the small minority of those who stuck, faith, stuck faithful. And, and really, if it weren't for the grace of God, there'd not even be a minority. Because no one deserves to be saved. So that's their situation. They are rebellious, and their land's been decimated, devastated, and they haven't changed. Comments and questions through verse 9. There's a few more places here than you understand. Anything you want to say through verse 9? I'll let you talk. I don't mind you being quiet either. We'll get through more. But when you've got something to say, don't hesitate to, to raise points. That'll be helpful to us as well. Yes, sir. Is there anything of significance to the cucumber field? <laughs> I, I assume it's just a, a good illustration of kind of an isolated hut in the middle of a whole field of cucumbers. This is isolated Jerusalem in the middle of a whole army of enemy. Probably, if you want to look at a specific thing here, think of 701, we'll look at that a lot uh, later, when Sennacherib conquered basically all of Judah, just leaving Jerusalem. You know, basically, well, Sennacherib said in his annals, I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. <laughs> and so that was a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. I think it's important when we say that we need to leave ourselves out of comparing ourselves to Israel. Because a lot of times I've noticed when we uh, study the people of Israel, we want to look at how bad they are and how we're better than them, but really we're not. I think that there's a ton of similarities between the people of Israel and us as a nation today. Sure, or maybe us individually or us as a church. That's certainly something we need to keep in mind. 
other thoughts. Okay? Well, what do you do with this? You're in bad shape. God's punished and chastened and all of that. Where do you go? What? How do you respond? Well, there are some wrong responses. He's going to deal with one of those in 10 to 15 if somebody wants to read that. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, you require who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate, <clears throat> I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wow. How does he describe these people? Yeah. In 9, Sodom and Gomorrah were sort of a description of what they would have been in terms of the devastation if it hadn't been for God's grace. But in 10, it's a description of their character. Until Isaiah, as far as I know, Sodom and Gomorrah stood alone as the absolute worst symbols of wickedness and unrighteousness that there was. And now it's God's very own people who are the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah. I mean, that is the worst put down, I believe, you can get in the Old Testament. Isaiah and perhaps the Lord who's really speaking here, did not have the modern idea that we ought to just tolerate and be positive toward all religious beliefs and experiences and that everybody is basically trying to do right in their own way and needs to be encouraged in it. God's very straightforward. Now that's probably mild. He's very direct here. And he says things in 11 to 15 that I would never expect the Lord to say. What's he condemning? Sacrifices and prayer and worship and feast days and worship assemblies. That's all the stuff I thought God was for. And here he's telling us I don't want any of that stuff. I've had enough. I'm fed up with it. I can't stand it. God is generally shocking in, in what he says. Uh, all over the Bible. If you really read it with your eyes open, it's like, I can't believe God said that. Um, what was the mentality of the people right here that God was rejecting? Yes, by what? Yes. It's typical for wicked people to be even more careful about worship procedures. To be even more um, zealous to get the sacrifices in there. 
and to, to go through all the motions of their religious activities because it makes them feel like I'm okay now. After all, I, you know, did my sacrifices. I went to my feast days. I, I was with the solemn assembly. Why wouldn't God want that? There's duplicity involved. It's not a single heart that's offering it. It's it's a, a heart that lives the way they want to live, but then pretends as if they're giving it to God. Yes. God wanted sacrifices. He commanded sacrifices, but he didn't want them from the people of Gomorrah. He wanted these people to repent. He wanted them to live right. It's just an abomination when these unwanted, unrighteous guests invade God's home all the time. He said, you're just wearing out the floor because it doesn't, you, you're not doing it from the heart, you're not doing what I ask you to do, you're just trying to cover up for it by putting on this front of piety and worship. Oh, I'm, I'm a righteous person. Look, I said my prayers, I've offered my sacrifices, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's really an outrage in, in the Lord's way of looking at that. He says in verse 14, you know, I hate your new moon festivals. And, and literally, my soul hates them. You know, God hates them with all his heart because, because it's hypocritical. Even their prayers. Look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, it's kind of a, a typical way of picturing prayer. You're, you're sort of spreading your hands out to God. You're appealing to God. Well, what was wrong with those prayers? With blood? What? They cut themselves? <coughs> They're injustice toward others. Yeah, absolutely. They're injustice and violence toward others. When you have hands filled, full, full, filled with bloodshed, God's not going to accept those hands extended to him in prayer. Obviously, that's hypocritical. You can't be uh, righteous toward God and exploit your neighbor. God won't allow that. And so their worship was an abomination before God. Is there any application for us in this passage? Anybody who is deaf on any possible uh, deviation from God's worship procedure? You know, it's, it's church three times a week without fail, come rain, shine, sickness, or death. You know, and you do it exactly the right way. Everything has to be down to the T. But you go to their house, <laughs> and there's selfish anger, and impatience, and greed. You go to the job, and there's cursing, and, and, and lust, and injustice, and so forth and so on. Now, we, most of you said, yeah, I know people like that. What about us? You ever been like that? You ever been somebody really concerned to do some things for God, but not concerned about what God says for your life? It's much easier to go through a worship ritual than it is to live right. And sometimes going through the worship ritual makes me think I don't have to live right. I worshipped. You know, I got the Lord's Supper in. That's good for a week. Or whatever. 
comments and thoughts on this section? Yes, Dustin. We just had, or at Roswell, where I attended in Georgia, we had we just had an invitation on Wednesday about um, how a friend of mine was having Bible studies with this one girl, and she said, well, she doesn't want to have them anymore because when she looks at the people in their church, all they're doing is acting like it. They see them acting the way, because she, she was upset because she wasn't called a Christian. And because of that, she looks at them and looks at their lives and what they're doing and says, uh, this one family would take their whole family out to Hooters and everything, and they do that. And this one family, their daughters um, had children out of wedlock. They had all these things, yet she's the one who is not a Christian. And when we think about it, not only is us just playing the act of church, disobedient to God, not only is it offensive to God, but it's ruining our chances of being able to spread God's word. And yeah. that's something we often don't think about. Yeah, who wants to hear the truth from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> you know, that kind of character sort of uh, puts a smudge on the uh, the truth we're supposed to be teaching. <coughs> Other thoughts, Sarah. When I was reading through this passage. There were a couple other places where the same type of thing is going on. First uh, Samuel fifteen twenty two, Malachi one ten. Uh, God desires, you know, a heart, not a sacrifice. And in Malachi, uh, oh, that someone would shut the temple doors and not kindle useless fire on my altar. And yeah, and Amos 5 and Micah 6 and so forth and so on. That is a pretty, a pretty common prophetic theme because it's a pretty common problem where people will, you know continue doing the worship stuff. Maybe even doing it right when their life's corrupt. Jeremy? Your religion isn't just between you and God. He's looking at this and how your religion affects everyone else around you. I can't be a jerk to everyone in my life and think that I'm okay with God because it's just between me and God. My relationship with God is going to spill over into my relationship with everybody else. Well, because... God's will extends to more than what we do in church. You know, sometimes we have this mentality that as long as we get church right, and that means the worship services, then God's God's happy. You know, it's like he's only inside the building. What we do outside the building doesn't count. Well, God's concerned with our life. Our whole life needs to be given to God and sacrificed to God and obedient to his will. Doing what God wants is a whole lot more than church. We're talking about gifts that we can give God to sort of compensate for our actions. But when it comes down to it, this is the, the righteousness that we can have is the only gift we can give God. Because He's given us, say, the random toxins. Well, He's given us the ability to choose for ourselves whether to be right or wrong. And when we choose to be right, that's a gift that only we can give. Yeah, absolutely. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants. He wants obedience. It's not sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15. There was a uh, church that I taught for somewhere. I lived in Brazil. They were really a mess in many, many ways. But they uh, 
had the habit of having a talk before the giving. Almost always somebody would get up and have like a five minute talk before they gave. And invariably, whoever it was had this sort of stereotype line that they did. Where they said this giving, this collection, is for the people who are Christians. If you're not a Christian, we don't want you to feel obligated to give. But if you do give, God will bless you for your offering. But what about that? You know, you don't have to obey him. Just give some money and God will be happy. You know, I taught this passage. I preached this passage. And asked them to consider that with in connection with what they said. They never changed. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but, but we don't usually say that. But do we think that? You know, well, look at what I did. Look at this. Look at that. Look at the other thing. As if that sort of gives us sort of got a wink at some other stuff. Other thoughts? Sarah? Another passage that came to mind was uh, with respect to verse 15 was 1 Timothy 2.8 yes. where men are commanded to lift up holy hands something like that. Yeah, exactly. And if they're not holy, God won't listen. Yeah. Good point. It's For us, I mean, it's, it's like we're lifting up our hands stained with blood uh, the blood of innocence in one sense or another I mean, when we try to pray and not be right I agree other thoughts well for us today when we're holding up hands covered with blood it's essentially the blood of Christ that is on our hands when we're praying or when we're worshiping in a manner that is well, when our heart does not agree with our actions it's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's not the blood of people that we've hurt on this earth so much as it is the blood of Christ. Well, he bruised in. We trample underfoot the Son of God and, and uh, crucify him afresh. Other thoughts? So what does he want? That's uh, still the question. Somebody want to read 16 to 20? <laughs> Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay. So, what's God commanding here? Repentance. Repentance. Live right. Reorganize your whole life. You know, there's some things you need to stop. Like, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight and cease to do evil. you got to decisively abandon your sin. There's some things you've got to learn. Learn to do good. And there's things you have to seek. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's the kind of thing you need. If you're, you know, if you want to be right with God, do what's right. Treat people right. Be just. Be fair. That, that's the kind of thing God wants. Um... So that's God's alternative. 10 to 15, throw another animal on the altar is not what God wants. He wants you to repent 
and do what's right. Pretty basic teaching. We understand it. But what do we do when we've done something wrong? What do we do? Do we try to make sure we study another chapter today? Try to make sure we give a little more in the collection? Or do we change? Do we turn away from sin and turn to God and seek righteousness and justice in our life? Comments and questions on 16 and 17. Uh, I wonder if it's tied to uh, 520 where the people that were calling good evil dead. There's a learning aspect to doing what's right and the people here need a re-education in what doing right actually is. It's kind of a shame that God's people have to learn to do what's right. They should have known it already, but clearly they didn't, and they do need to be re-educated. Good point. He says in 18, Come now and let us reason together. Here's a rebellious, worthless nation, and God wants to negotiate. And he's offering cleansing. He's offering to take all of their crimson sins and make them white, as wool, as snow. That's amazing. Basically, they've got two choices. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword. Either you eat, or you'll be eaten, depending on whether or not you obey or rebel. Those are the choices, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is what he says about it. And so God is really presenting them a new opportunity, new life, a new chance. But there's two clear alternatives. Which way will they take? This is just a great summary of, of the book of Isaiah. You know, we're looking here at the basic principles and messages that he teaches, the messages we need as well. Comments and thoughts through verse 20. I think it reminds me so much of back when they started the nation with Moses and the Deuteronomy 27 and 28. I mean, you know, you have before you what you can choose. I mean, you can choose life or you can choose death. And I just think how that's... Uh, just that we, we seem to make things complicated. Like, they maybe make things complicated. All the details that got bogged down in, all the rituals and all, uh, you know, the, you know, even the Pharisees, once you got the New Testament, you saw this, the, the bulk of the details of the law, instead of simple, you know, it's either you choose good or you choose to be selfish. Uh, and it's... it's I think our life, when we focus on more, it's more than the simple things. Uh, matters on heart rather than on the detail. Amen. John. I think that uh, the theme of holiness and just righteousness, God wants us to be like Him. And when we, when we're doing like the uh, the different things to, you know, in the worship service, like the Pharisees, like the um, people of Israel were doing, we're not trying to be like Him. We're trying to you know, obey him, which is which is you know what he set forth and what we're trying to do. But I probably should have mentioned this earlier. But in verse four of chapter one, um, it says the Holy One of Israel, and that phrase will come through the whole book. And I think that's that's just a major point there that God wants us to be holy and righteous, and not just follow through the through the action. Amen. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes, Eric. Um, verse 16, wash yourself, make yourself clean. And then 18 says, come and your sins are as scarlet as they are, as white as snow. 
in what sense is that the idea of us watching as it's a 16 or a God doing something? Well, well, I think repentance is required for us to be cleansed. You know, we wash ourselves by turning to the Lord and letting Him cleanse us. So, without 16 and 17, God won't cleanse them. That, that's what I'd say. They need to wash themselves by repentance and coming to the Lord so that He will cleanse them. So, ultimately, the washing in 16 is, is, 16 is done is done by God? I think so. Sir. This is sort of one of my favorite verses. Come now and let us reason together. But what does that mean? I've always thought, you know, that it means the idea of literally sitting down and studying, reasoning that this is a reasoned decision, but it almost sounds like it's said something about like it's a bargain or a barter. Well, I think it's God holding out the olive branch to these people who we would have just wiped out and forgotten about. But they're, they're terrible. They're wicked. They're corrupt. They're offending His holiness by what they're doing in the temple. And then He says, alright, let's sit down and talk about it. I mean, he's, he's willing to sit down and try to discuss it, and he's pleading with them to accept his forgiveness and cleansing. You know, he's still trying to show his mercy and grace to them and persuade them to repent so that he can forgive them. So I think, you know, he's offering to discuss it in the sense that he's trying to appeal to them to sit down and, and talk and think and be persuaded of the need to turn back to God. Let's sit down and talk about this rationally. Yes, yes. Except in one sense, it's not rational. What God wants to do, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, it doesn't... How can this be? How can this be? Yes. Is this what the NBA... We were talking about that, was it last week? talking about God's response to their... That God is unreasonably gracious and merciful. Yes, certainly. Everywhere. You show me one passage where God doesn't show grace and mercy that is not justified by the merit of the one that's shown mercy. It really wouldn't be grace and mercy if it was based on merit. And so always what God does is outrageous, the prodigal son. What self-respecting father would ever even look again at a boy who'd done what that boy had done. And yet he runs to meet him and throws a party for him. So God's grace always blows our mind. And so I think here again, 18 is not what you'd expect. Really, 16 and 17 isn't what you'd expect. You'd expect annihilation, and then we'll start over with Moses or whoever. Isaiah, maybe. Yes, John. I think that really illustrates God's control and how how easily we as humans can lose control. You know, we're angry when we see this hypocrisy and stuff, but yet God, you know, holds his anger back. You know, he tries to, you know, control himself and offer, you know, essentially a deal to these people. You know, cleanse yourself and you know, be all right. You know, dedicate yourself to me. Yes. Anything else? Alright, we'll do about 20-25 more minutes and then we'll take a break. Um, 21 to 26. 
How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore the, your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So, you see what's happened and it's horrible, it's outrageous. What had the city been? What kind of character had it had? Righteousness. Righteousness and faithfulness. And what's happened to her? Now murderers. Now murderers. Now a harlot. What a fall. Your silver has become dross. It's all become the slag, the garbage that you don't want. Your drink has been diluted with water. Your rulers, they're rebels. And they are um, unjust in their treatment of the unfortunate. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. The treatment of the orphan and the widow, in the prophets especially, is a proof of the righteous character of the people. Because they are the easiest people to take advantage of. And so when they are abused and mistreated, it just goes to show you that the people are selfish and greedy and unjust. That's that's the, the, the thing you see here. This is what's happened to them. It, it's just, it, it's horrible. It, it's God looking at these people and seeing what they had been and what they could have been, and yet, alas, what they are. Comments and questions on 21 to 23. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares. Why Why have all those titles for God there at the beginning of 24? Shows his right to take vengeance on the Not only his right, but also his responsibility. His power, his ability. He can do what he plans to do. He is the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. If you've got the New American Standard, like I do, you'll notice God in all caps, small caps. Whenever you have God or Lord in small caps, that's a sign that he's talking about. Uh, the, in the original, it was the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever you want to call that. And usually that's translated in our Bibles, Lord in all caps. Wouldn't work here though. Because you've got the regular word for Lord meaning master or ruler first. So if you translated it, therefore the Lord, Lord of hosts, <laughs> sounds like you're stuttering. So when the word Yahweh comes together with the normal word for Lord, Master, Ruler, then it's translated as God in all caps. That's in the very preface of your New American Standard, if that's what you've got. Some other translations may handle it differently. But this is the Lord Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares what? How does he do that? 
Yes. It doesn't feel very good if you're one of the enemies, that's for sure. He's going to get relief. He's going to get revenge by punishing them, by luring the boom on them. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your drosses with lye. Remove all your alloy. God is strong in his punishment of, of the sinners. And he's going to restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. He's going to give them righteous leaders that are so important. And, and, and going to, he's going to punish them and chasten them to the point of bringing them once again to be a city of righteousness. A faithful city. You see the process here. Look carefully. This is an extended chiasm if you look at it. Look at the very beginning in 21 and the very end in 26. What do you see? Faithful city. And then look right before that in 26. What do you see? And what did you see in 21? Righteousness once lodged in her. So we start with a faithful city, a city of righteousness. We end with a city of righteousness, a faithful city. Now in 22, what do you see? Silver become dross. And what do you see in 25? Yes. So the next stage of that is this idea of becoming dross and then having the dross smelted away. And then in 23, you have the rebellion of the corrupt rulers. And in 24, we have the punishment by the great ruler. So you have a faithful city, a city of righteousness. Silver became dross, the wickedness of the rulers. The punishment by the great ruler. The um, purification of the dross to make silver again. The city of righteousness. The faithful city. An A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. You don't understand that, that's okay. But I think the idea of this is that the way down becomes the way up. You know, they went down stage by stage and then they come up by God's grace step at a time. To where he restores them back to the purity of the faithful city they had once been. Comments and questions through 26. It also points out that this cleansing that he's talking about in verses 16 through 20, in verse 21, verses 21 through 26, he illustrates that it has to be complete and total. And step, it's a, it's a process, it's not a one-time, now it's all gone. Deal. Yes, good point. Other thoughts? Even in a passage like this, God's overall purpose is to bless. <laughs> That's amazing. God goes through all of this to be able to purify them back out to where he can make them a faithful city again. Other thoughts? Okay, 27 to 31. Zion will be redeemed with justice and the repentant ones with righteousness. The transgressions of sinners will be crushed together. Those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired. You will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak 
whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both return to you, and there will be none to quench them. Okay. Um, what you see in 27 and 28 is God's dividing line between the righteous and the wicked goes right through the middle of his people. You've gotten 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice or repentant ones with righteousness, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. So, God's going to divide between the righteous and the wicked among his people, among his own people. And in 29, you will be ashamed of the oaks which you've desired and will be embarrassed at the gardens which you've chosen. What do the oaks in the gardens represent? Idolatry? I think so. They would worship God often, or worship the gods, I should say, in the nice shade of the trees. Sort of a pleasant garden setting. Where it was it was a more um, you know, enjoyable and uh, uh gratifying place to be to worship these idols. That was really a common thing in the idol worship that they would try to do it in ways that really made them happy. Hosea 4.13 They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. You know, you chose that because you really like the shade. You know, it's to make you feel good. It was, uh, you know, kind of a nice spot for a picnic, you know. You, you barbecue some of the sacrifices and you enjoy eating there. And, and it's a really pleasant, uplifting worship experience. Or you look at Amos chapter uh, 4. Amos 4 and verse 5. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel. They would worship God in the ways that they really enjoyed. And wow, isn't that where our generation is? How many people are looking for the church of their choice? Are looking for a church home that makes them feel comfortable? That's fulfilling and uplifting and leaves them encouraged? They want a, a worship experience that, that satisfies them? You know, we've got very much of a consumer mentality. You know, let the church provide me with whatever things will make me feel good. Well, that's exactly what the idolaters did. They invented the worship that made them feel good. Complete with temple prostitutes and some of them. And, you know, God rejects that. You know, you'll be ashamed of choosing the kind of worship that makes you happy. Isaiah did not believe that one religion is as good as another. He says, these, well, look at what happens. You choose the oaks and the gardens and what happens? Embarrassed and ashamed and what then happens? Yeah. God will dry it up. Somebody will light a match and it will be burned up. You'll become as dry as the tree in the garden that you chose. You choose the garden, your self-made worship, and there's no water. You choose the one who made the garden, and he'll provide you with streams of living water. There's the choice. They wanted to worship 
and choose what pleased them. And God says, that'll burn up. You choose what pleases me. Pretty strong chapter to begin uh, prophecy with, don't you think? Comments and thoughts on chapter 1. There's such a contrast between the people who are so self-centered and concerned with uh, doing what they want to and God who uh, I mean it, it says the people they ignore the widows they uh, I mean they're doing everything to please themselves like you, like you just said and God even when they're being horribly rebellious and selfish and self-centered uh, is concerned for them and wants what's best for them so I mean just it must be so frustrating to God who is so completely concerned and loving toward other people that they just don't understand how to reciprocate absolutely the self-focus of the people and the absolute unselfishness of God is an incredible contrast that's a very good point why would God even care about these people because he wants to because he cares to love them and they only wanted to please themselves yeah good point the continuity of the message here with just what we see has already been made reference to other you know uh, prophecies prophets teachings but the continuity of this message throughout the the whole Bible and the simplicity of the message is, is striking yeah other thoughts? Ah, let's uh, pause for a moment. I want to tell you a brief story, and uh, then we'll be dismissed for a little bit uh, to relax, and I'll give you a couple of instructions before we do that. But um, I think this would be an edifying thing to tell you about, and I would like your prayers about this as well. Um, I'll try to tell this as economically as I can. Uh, But there is a boy in Brazil who I met two trips ago when Lauren Kyle went with me in May. But I spent a lot of time with in November when I was in Porto Alegre. He's 14. His name in English would be Ryan. His name in Portuguese is Hian. And... uh, Hian's family is really complicated. His dad just became a Christian. His mother's Catholic. Uh, his siblings are not Christians. He's the youngest. And he was, he was not a Christian. But he was has been going to church with his uncle for some time. And uh, we spent a lot of time together talking. And I was really amazed by the attitudes that he has displayed <coughs> since I... Uh, talked with him. He had already made a lot of changes, particularly at school and in the use of his time to read and and pray more. And uh, in this last month and a half, he's done some really remarkable things by the grace and power of God. He uh, had been struggling with some uh, teenage issues a lot. And he has turned that around remarkably, amazingly. (laughs) Has just given up some practices that he was very frequent in practicing. He has really studied and prayed a lot, and even disciplined himself to do that. He uh, had a situation, this was an amazing thing to me, 
had a situation where he was talking with a brother, a good brother, who made a reference to the fact that at one point in his life he had taken some time to pray and fast and try to reorient himself on the Lord. And without telling anyone until this person figured it out and asked, he spent 48 hours without eating anything to try to focus himself on the Lord more and do what the brother had done. All of that before he was a Christian. His parents had prohibited him from being baptized uh, for various reasons. And uh, he was determined that he was going to do what was right anyway. His father finally told him it was okay, but he didn't agree with him doing it. He was baptized on Monday. I talked to him uh, three or four hours ago, and he told me it's been really hard on him since he's become a Christian because his family is really trying to get at him and provoke him. They don't believe he had the whatever to become a Christian. They don't believe he's really changed and so they are really taunting him and doing a lot of things to try to get him upset, to try to get him to lose his temper and become impatient. It's really been hard for him. He's done reasonably well with that. But I told him that I would mention to you all about him and ask you to pray for him. Uh, I think he's shown more discipline and determination trying to do what's right than most people I know. And uh, it's often what happens when you become a Christian. People then throw it in your face every time they even think you might have stumbled and and make fun of you for it. That's exactly what the devil wants. He wants you to think, you can't do it, you're worthless, just give up. And I don't think Heon will give up by the grace of God. But, uh, but I think it would be helpful if we could remember him in uh, our prayers. As I said, in English, his name is Ryan, so that might help you remember his name. But uh, I, uh, it's really great to be here. I'm excited about uh, this these days. Uh, many of you will be able to stay around all three days. Some of you won't, uh, and others will be here other days. But it's, been, it's really encouraging. But here's the situation we've got. Uh, many of you don't know very many other people here. A few of you don't know hardly anybody.